0: The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed.
1: Shall we begin?
2: Let's begin. James Bond is easily the best known of all cinematic spies. Heck, he's by many measures the number one most globally recognized film character, even beating out Darth Vader for that honor. This is largely due to being the first cinematic spy hero, and also in part for his enduring presence that lasts from his 1962 debut to current day, where many spy movie fans are really looking forward to No Time to Die. I know I am. I'm Todd.
1: And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies.
2: A full decade of Bond movies transpires before the franchise sets its sights on immortality by swapping out the original Sean Connery for Roger Moore. Can Roger take on the torch? We'll take a look at his most appreciated jog in the big pants of 007, 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, in this episode of Spies Like Us. The Spy Who Loved Me, the 1977 film. Contemporary events like all Bond films, they all just deal with events that happened when the movie came out. Uh, We're going to, as always, in any Bond film, we're going to see MI6, ...in this film, and what we guess is the KGB in this film, although neither agency is explicitly named. This is going to be our uh, Roger Moore as Bond episode, his third outing as Bond, and uh, seems to overall be the best regarded as as all of his films. There's uh, there's uh, apparently a lot of hits and, and big misses in his pile of his contribution... <laughs> so, at first I wanted to try I wanted to try to find the most representative of his films I found 5 Roger Moore Bond films ranked lists and I put them all side by side and basically they all five of these people just completely disagree with each other about everything as to which is the best and the worst except this one four people put this at his best but then the fifth dentist uh put it at his worst I guess I just went with this one and we'll do... I mean, because with Sean Connery, supposedly from Russia, with Love, we were told was, was supposedly his best. So I guess we're being as fair as we can to Roger Moore and giving him his uh, his best movie. But uh, just, just <laughs> noting that uh, a lot of his films uh, stray into really, really silly territory. <laughs> uh, we're going to reserve our personal opinions about uh, Roger Moore as bond for part two of this podcast, but uh, I you know i I don't mind saying right now like i I just generally was fine with him,
1: yeah, yeah. I didn't have any issues, yeah, I remember growing up he, saying Connery's the best because that's what everybody says um, I, he was fine
2: we could we could we could note that our expectations were set pretty low uh, after <laughs> from Russia with love. Uh, neither dave or i are like long time bond heads so uh we're kind of coming at these movies sort of fresh i mean obviously we've seen films here or there right Um, we didn't care
1: much for connery's bond we were we were we were pretty harsh on the on the the sleaze moves that he did on all the ladies
2: his sleaziness has not aged well we we were so down on him i felt i don't know uh i I had second i had misgivings i guess uh (laughs) even though like i'm just speaking my truth um but you know it did seem weird seemed seemed like we were like maybe out of step like was there something we're missing but you know sir connery did pass away just a couple weeks ago and uh in the retrospectives that i've listened to on his career, uh, yeah, they pretty much agreed with us that uh, it's really it's really hard to watch him work.
1: Right, and I mean, we gave some pretty low ratings on the last one. We we were not a big fan uh, of the Connery stuff. So you can come fight us at Facebook or Twitter.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll happily
1: respond. <laughs> Both of us will jump in on it with you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll fight. I'll fight for my opinions uh, any any day. Uh, this is this is a well-received film. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has got it at 80% critic freshness and 76% audience. So, you know, not spectacular, but definitely solid. Um, the film takes its title from Ian Fleming's 1962 novel, but it doesn't contain any elements of the novel's plot. In fact, Fleming had requested that no elements from his original book uh, be used, but uh, the two film characters of the henchmen Jaws and the bald guy, those do happen to be like pretty clear ripoffs from from the Spy Who Loved Me book.
1: I, I gotta say, I really enjoyed watching Jaws. He, he was
2: a great villain. He's he's the star of the show. I think he's one. Yeah. He's he's one of the stars of the show. Uh, just, just like
1: in Russia with Love, we we, we uh, nerded out on the villain in that
2: one too. Mm. On the heavy. Mm-hmm. Right, which was uh, Moira... Skarsgård? guard? No, Mora help help us out here. Who's the um? Who was the who played the heavy in From Russia with Love?
0: James Bond's most direct antagonist in 1961's From Russia with Love was played by Robert Shaw.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Robert Shaw, yeah. of course. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of it's another case of the the heavy uh, overshadowing the main villain because I do think Jaws is a lot more fun than his boss uh, in this film. So the, they wanted to do, they were going to bring Blofeld back, right? Blofeld is the guy that, um, is like the head of Spectre, which was the main behind the scenes, everything villain in almost all of us, all but one of the Sean Connery movies. The problem was here that this guy, Kevin McClory, who was one of the producers that got involved somewhere in the series, he owned the film rights to Thunderball. And for some reason that made him like have a claim that he owned the rights to Blofeld Inspector. And, and that delayed the production of this film, obviously, you know, like if you gotta completely come up with a new villain, that's gonna set Wait, up really? quite a bit, right?
1: With all the location shots and action shots, that must have been a nightmare.
2: Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's just mainly you just got to you just got to get in there and retweet that story, uh, I suppose. And and what it's about. And maybe we'll get into this later. Maybe that's why I found the villain in this one a little thin as far as, I don't know, weightiness and gravitas. So that's why we don't use Spectre anymore uh, in the Bond films, except in 2013. Uh, MGM finally like came to an agreement with that uh, dickhead producer guy and got the right to use Spectre <laughs> back again, so that they right. could make the uh, the the Daniel, Daniel Craig film that yeah. has Spectre in it. Yep, yep, yep. So it's really hard for me, like w- with with old movies, to kind of assess the budgetiness of them. Um, but I did kind of have a feeling that this one was up there its time so oh yeah yeah i did i did a look and i did compare to all the james bond films and i found a a link that also it showed what they spent in real dollars and this one is indeed like straight up in real dollars they spent seven times more on this than they did from russia with love and uh even adjusted for inflation it's like uh about like one and a half times and i felt like it showed up on screen
1: Especially okay. the like car submarine thing and the model work and like the bajillion location shots and
2: yeah, for sure. And the, the incredibly uh, lavish final action scene. Yeah. Right. But, but let's start, let's start with that car, right? The car that turns into a submarine, which I think is one of the very first things you find out about James Bond. Like if someone's, Described. Well, maybe that was just me as a kid, but I think he's the guy that has a car that does stuff.
1: Right. <laughs> like a Batmobile. Yeah. Batmobile. yeah, like a
2: Batmobile. Um, I did really like the Lotus car submarine sequence. Um, one thing I noted, it, especially during that sequence, but I'll say it for the rest of the film too, the music was used a lot better in this film than From Russia With Love. Not Not that I want to compare every single little bit of this movie to that movie, but that was one of my uh hangups in Russia, and uh I did not have that here and and the music was very sexy and energetic, especially in the action scenes you know it was just appropriately matched right but, but further about this submarine is when I was looking at it. I was thinking, oh, obviously, it's super, like, way before CG. But also, I was looking at it and just noting, like, the size of the bubbles situation and, and kind of realizing that this wasn't a model. Like, it really looked full size. And it interacts with human actors in some of the shots. So, uh, I looked it up. And man, oh, man, is this shit interesting. Uh, <laughs> it is an actual submarine well sort of uh it it actually does there's there's two people in it that are piloting it uh it doesn't have a dry interior so those two guys the guy who was driving it was like an ex-navy seal um those two guys are in wetsuits with oxygen tanks and it can pretty much only go forward is is what it can do they used a bunch of different models to do the transformation sequence so, you know, they had one that, you know, obviously there's one that has tires, there's one that has, like, half tires, and one that has the fins partially coming out, stuff like that. You know, they didn't actually build one that could that could transform. The, the car that they built itself also has really some interesting, an interesting future ahead of it after this movie. Uh, they put it after the movie, they did push it around and show it off in like promotional events for a bit. But then they put it in a storage container, paid for 10 years, and then just completely forgot about it. (laughs) At the end of the lease, when nobody claimed the contents, it was part of a blind auction. You know, like that show where people buy uh, storage, storage units? Yeah. Blind? And then see what's in it? The people that that got the car, they paid less than $100 for the unit. What? They paid less than $100, not knowing what was in it. And boom, it's the James Bond submarine car. That's a nice come up. That's really dope. And uh, finally, currently, uh, as of 2013, Elon Musk has bought the car. And of course, because he's fucking insane, he plans to convert (laughs) it into an actual functional car submarine.
1: Oh that's really cool.
2: <laughs> That'll be fun. A very very musky thing to do. Um last note I got for you on this one remember the um when the car comes up out of the water and we get the the one guy that's like doing that totally jokey like he's drinking from a bottle and then he what? He sees the right. car coming out of the out of the ocean and he looks at the bottle, you know, like what the hell am I drinking? Mm-hmm. Um, that was the assistant director of the Italian locations, and as an in joke, he shows up doing the exact same thing in two other Bond films.
1: That's a cute little uh, inside joke.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think that I don't think that joke a- ages well at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it's more of a it's more of a what you would call it? I don't know. It, it's it's like it's like a cartoon joke. But right. sometimes it's just cute to see what people used to think was funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, more about the money spent on the film and, uh, you know, looking into how they built stuff. Uh, you know, another part of the film, which we're going to talk about, even though it doesn't have a lot to do about with tradecraft. But uh, really, I, one of my favorite parts of the movie was the big, like everything inside the uh, the huge super tanker, the lipras. Right. They built uh, the largest soundstage in the world specifically for this movie. Uh, It's called the Albert Broccoli 007 stage, Albert Broccoli being one of the original uh, Bond producers. And uh, it is still the largest in the world. Uh, It's been expanded twice since then.
1: Oh, wow. Do they still film the other Bond stuff there?
2: They sure do. They film lots of stuff there. The the most interesting one I saw was... uh, in Aliens, the hangar of the Sulaco is filmed on this stage.
1: Oh, that's cool. Maybe like, that's that just must be a really to big
2: because I, I love aliens so much. Right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's not, even though it is the largest stage, soundstage in the world, it's not actually big enough to hold three nuclear submarines. So the submarines mm-hmm. we see in the movie are like one third the size of actual submarines. Oh, okay. Still pretty cool. And, yeah, uh, they put a lot of money into this movie. That is everything I had to say about kind of the movie itself. And uh, if you're ready, I'm ready. Briefing room. I'm definitely ready. Let's go.
0: Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room.
2: So let's uh, let's let's take it. Uh, let's start out with the villain here, Carl Stromberg. Uh, I like the fact they keep it simple here. He likes underwater; that's his villainous <laughs> motif. Uh, right. You might, you might remember quite recently in Spy Kids, uh, I was pointing out that our uh, Floop character, uh, that was like the the head villain in that one, like he had way too much stuff going on. He had right. Had puzzles. He liked fingers. He liked candy stuff. He liked forced perspective stuff. I'm probably missing another couple. This is how you do it. Keep it simple. Give him one thing. Underwater. His background is really just kind of like, not important or not of interest. The movie doesn't seem to be actually all that interested in this guy, if you know what I'm saying. Right. Uh, He's an industrialist and keep in mind like like we just said, he was kind of, had to be quickly written in here because it had been the uh, Blofeld guy who was in the original script. So maybe that's part of it. Um, But I think his plan sucks. It does. I completely agree. Okay, tell me about it
1: i don't I don't understand like he he's you know he's kind of one of those typical villains where like uh they, they're gonna save the world and start over because people suck or something but his plan is to nuke the entire planet and let them kill each other off and then he's gonna start a new world underwater um i'm I'm not really sure why underwater and why just i guess he's trying to kill people off to like reset humanity uh but his whole like army of dudes are they they working for this new world or are they just like mercenaries and there isn't a lot of women it's not like in uh uh a man called flint where like there was like this giant utopia full of hippies oh right yeah definitely could be populated it's like a bunch of soldier dudes yeah no there's not
2: there's not not a lot of women there's no women there's, yeah, and there's he like, doesn't have
1: like a main squeeze. Oh wait, no, he did. He had that one, and then she got blown up. That's right.
2: I mean, I guess we it it's still it's an open question to me to me if the city if his underwater city is actually built. You know, like, and when we see his model of it in his study, uh, it doesn't look very big. It's just like a few little tiny domes next to his big like super base, which is pretty right. Big. But uh, yeah, it definitely doesn't look like there's much to it who is like is it populated is it going to be populated like you said is it the we're guessing i think uh the the crew of a ship the size of the illpirus would have been about 700 um but yeah if you just got the 700 guys and when he's you know at the end of the movie when bond comes back to his like even if his base is like of the real estate that they have to live in under the city. Like it's, it's completely empty when Bond visits it.
1: Right. And then, and how are they going to expand from that? If you're resetting humanity, you're going to want to make things bigger. I I mean, maybe as future plans, but it looked like this was his like dream utopia uh, Atlantis type of thing, but it, yeah, it didn't look like you were going to host a lot of like, like restarting humanity
2: that said i do like his base i think it's pretty damn cool i like the scene where it rises from the water i love the paintings coming down to reveal the the windows you know so we can Mm -hmm. see all the water streaming down and and the way he's got his his study wherever that's located well actually the study Mm -hmm. i think is located inside an aquarium of some kind
1: yeah cuz you still see the fishes in the so that's why we were, we weren't sure if those were windows or TV screens but every time you're in the study you still see the fish even when it's above water but what was weird was when the lady fell into the shark tank she she like fell in from the study but the aquarium or from
2: the dining room or from the oh oh yeah that right it wasn't dining, dining the main different than the study but yeah oh, I right see. so she does fall down Right. So I think his I think his study is at it is near the bottom of the base. Uh um, oh, okay. But yeah, I mean obviously they're TV screens, but it looks like they were meant to be windows. But if they're meant to be windows, there's some inconsistencies in what you're actually seeing through them. So then maybe you fix that by just saying, well, maybe they are just TV screens. Yeah. But anyways. Uh he's not only got that big super base, he's also got his uh the Liparus. Uh, which is basically like an aircraft carrier for subs. Pretty badass in my opinion. Uh, It's got some kind of capability to disable subs somehow. Uh, They didn't quite discuss it, but it disables the electric systems. And I looked into that and nuclear, actually nuclear and diesel subs, both are primarily electric driven. So that is the correct way that you would disable a sub in that fashion is to EMP them. Oh okay. He's got uh he's got the classic. I don't know when I don't know when it started exactly uh with Bond villains, but you know the classic thing about them is that they you know completely overexplain their right. master plan at the end of the, at the end of the Let film. me tell you my plan, Mr. Bond. Yeah, he definitely checks that box off. Right. And then, you know, and then he's taking off with the with the girl leaving Bond to die or whatever and uh, you know he, he specifically says like farewell Mr. Bond I must admit that term has a welcome ring of permanency about it <laughs> are they kidding are they laughing at themselves I gotta think <laughs> probably because yeah
1: there's there's a lot of one line zingers in this one uh. Uh, that you could kind of like goof around with it. yeah I kept rolling my eyes through the whole time when we were watching it. Did you have anything else on Stromberg? Not really. He kind of just was there. It wasn't really anything interesting other than to have a villain and explain the point of all of this, which really wasn't that exciting.
2: His toys are much more interesting than he is.
1: Yeah. 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 So but, especially the boat, the the big the big boats that like swallow submarines were really cool.
2: Yeah, no, that's the that thing's amazing. Um, I think I think that scene where it swallows the uh, American submarine was when I really like for the first time in the movie really leaned forward in my chair and started yeah. getting, like, massive <laughs> attention. Right. Uh, so yeah, so his plan, his plan go like the technicals of it. He's a uh, well, first, he has these scientists develop a tracking system so that he can track submarines uh, from from satellite. And so he knows where they all are and exactly where they are. And then he's also got this thing that can capture the submarines. Um, and then he's going to use those submarines to, you know, launch the missiles that'll turn into geothermal nuclear war. He's got a p- little bit of a problem, though. The plans for the sub-tracking device have been stolen, or at least not well—not stolen. Yeah, stolen. Copied. Someone, someone took a little camera, and and, right. and got pictures of them. And those plans are now being offered up on, like, not the open market, but they're they're being offered to various the elite companies. market. Yeah, I guess. To various world powers, the
1: the the elite black market.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not exactly sure exactly like how much that interferes with his core plan, but it's a it's a loose thread. He wants to take care mm-hmm. of it. Uh, he knows who stole the plans initially, and that's his female assistant. And he's gonna feed her to a shark. Uh, which I'll put minus spy points on, like I pretty much always do when people find out someone betrayed them and immediately murder them instead of uh, shaking them down for information.
1: Yeah. yeah, definitely a bad move, just like cutting her off. He, he could have traced where the. Well, I guess they already figured out where the film was going because um, he sent Jaws out. Mm hmm. So,
2: yeah, I mean. So, I guess.
1: He, he already had the info he needed? I don't know.
2: But he, he could have used her or, like, flipped her. Yeah, or just get more information. I mean, until you have the microfilm in hand. Right. Yeah. So, I'm calling her Sharkbait. I don't yeah. even think she, we, we <laughs> ever got a name out of her. Right. The relationship of her to Feckish and Kalba are never made super clear in the film. But I could... Speak spin a story out of it that's at least consistent for our purposes. I think maybe she saw the opportunity to steal the plans, said, oh, these would be very valuable. Maybe she had a friend, Feckish, who we're going to meet in Cairo, and said, can you help me move these? And maybe he says, yeah, I know a guy, which would be Max Calva, the... The, the club owner? Yeah, the club owner. Um, but it doesn't make sense that bond has to find fekesh in order to find kalba if they, he already knows his friend is contacting cairo already knows that kalba's the guy with the microfilm and kalba's a club owner he's in the phone book just look him up
1: right and like when bond gets to the club he's just like i'm looking for kalba and like just some like Bus boy is like oh he owns this club he's right there you know hey that was the first thought i had when he gets to the club i was like well clearly this guy is not trying to be like uh secretive about anything he's he's literally like one of those club owners that are like yes i own this club i got money look at these ladies in this club right. come i will get you a drink
2: when he finds feckish he's talking to a major uh what's her name Triple X. Uh Amasova. Maj- Major Amasova. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talking to... Fekish is talking to her at an ex- exhibition of the pyramids. Um, also, just questions here like what do they have to discuss? All he needs to do is say Max Kalba, club owner. Right. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't know what more conversation uh, they're actually needing to be having at that point.
1: Right. But at some point bond spots him, uh, I guess, cause they're not paying attention to the, to the pyramid discussion, uh, or lights or something. So they must be spies. Uh, but jaws also spots him and he runs off to some tomb somewhere to get away from bond and jaws and whatever. Um, Bond follows Jaws and Fekish to the tomb, but he just kind of stays outside of the tomb. And this kind of bothered me. And I'm going to make this my number one worst tradecraft. Like, Bond just stands behind a rock as Jaws is trying to kill Fekish, who's the guy he's trying to watch. Fekish tries to lock himself into, like, a a gate that leads into the tomb. Jaws bites off the thing because he's got, like, super strong metal teeth or something. So I don't know why Bond just stood there outside when he could have followed them in because they didn't know that he was following them. He could have listened in on their conversation. He could have stopped Jaws from killing Fekish and gotten more information out of Fekish, or even just gotten more information out of Jaws. I don't know. It was silly. The whole thing was silly. He just waits till Jaws leaves and then goes in and finds a dead body and – uh, that's where he finds the guy's, like, calendar, and he goes, ah, I'm going to the club to meet Kalba, who I could have looked up in the phone book. So, uh, I don't know. I think this were a missed opportunity for getting information on Jaws and on Fekish.
2: Well, I've got another missed opportunity, too. When he comes out, uh, he finds Amasova and two Russian thugs. The thugs attack him. He disables them, and he just says goodnight to her. No questions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's, that's no bueno. Right. <laughs> and, and before we get out of here, uh, minus, so yeah, minus five points for that. Minus five points also for Feckish. Uh, you know, like the whole reason you met Amasova in this big crowded space was for safety. And as soon as you spot any kind of threat, you immediately like run off into the ruins. Of the desert, right. where where it's not safe, like don't do that. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let me just give the perfect uh, strike of opportunity for the murderer.
2: Mm. Hmm. Wah wah. Yeah. Uh, I wondered why. Why? No, I mean when they do get a chance later in the film when they've got their hands on the microfilm, Bond's going to find out that it's been sabotaged in a way that it doesn't have the critical information. And I wondered why that was or who exactly did that, like who along the chain. And actually I realized it could have been any of the three people. It could have been Sharkbait, It could have been feckish or it could have been Kalba, if that was the chain of, uh, you know, handing the thing over. But <laughs> whoever did it was probably smart Because they anticipated that someone might just try to steal the microfilm, uh, in which case, or if you had it, you know, you could show it to someone and it has enough information on it that proves that you have the real stuff, but Mm. you're still protected from them just saying like, okay, I'll just fucking kill you and take it. Right. You could show it to them, then you could get payment, and then uh, you could give up the, the... the authentic item. So I'll give plus five points for that. In fact, I think it's my best tradecraft for this movie.
1: Well, one of the things I did want to point out was when the microfilm first comes out is at the club and uh, <clears throat> T- Agent Triple X and 007 are talking to Kalba and he gets a phone call and that's where Jaws kills him and takes the, I guess, sabotaged microfilm. I, I, I don't know why he didn't have any guards. Like, you would think a club owner of that level would have like security, like at least watching him like all the time, and yet Jaws just makes up a fake phone call, pretending to be a service guy, and then just like bites his neck off. I don't, I don't know. I'm gonna make that my worst trade craft number three. Uh, not having guards as a club owner. I'm, I'm sure there's other people looking for you, and not just like private or government spies. I'm, I'm, I'm sure with that kind of money running around, you're probably involved, especially if you are it on the elite black market. You got to hope... know that people
2: are, you got to know that people are going to come after you to get this thing. Right. <laughs> and some of those people are Amasova and Bond, but some of the other people are the guys that uh, Stromberg sends out, which is uh, Jaws. Yay. And right. the other guy, red shirt guy. Right. It's, it's it's weird, you know. You got you get your two guys and one of them is like, you know, my thing is I have amazing, super creepy, awesome metal teeth. Ah and the other guy's like, and my thing is I'm bald. Right. <laughs> not really surprised that uh bald guy was, was just turned out to be a red shirt that did not last very long in this movie.
1: He kind of had no purpose; he kind of was there to try and kill Bond, and then Bond like I mean, well, I guess the fight scene with him was kind of cool. It was a fun fight scene,
2: yeah, yeah i wasn't I wasn't thrilled with it. A lot of the hits that that Bond landed on the guy like really would not have impacted a guy of that size anywhere mm-hmm. near the way it does um but uh I wondered. You know, like so many times, especially in like bad movies, this guy this guy is waiting to ambush somebody at Feckish's house. Uh, so when Bond shows up there, the guy tries to take him out. And a lot of times in bad movies, they don't have any actual justification for why there was a guy there waiting. But right. I think in this case, it's plus spy points and makes sense. Because since he knows that Feckish is trying to help broker the sale of the subtracker, he knows people are gonna come sniffing around and his orders are to eliminate anybody that uh is anywhere close to this situation. So that was all right. I think actually it's uh my number two best trade craft. Not a lot not a lot to pick from here. It's a bond. No,
1: there was, there wasn't a lot of trade craft, let alone really good trade craft. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And this uh this girl that's working with him there that's that's fuzzy too, as to whether or not she's actually working with Richard bald hitman or whether or not whether he just threatened her. What do you think?
1: Uh, I'm not sure uh threatening sounds pretty good, but it seems like she knew Fekish pretty well. And was told to like entertain Bond and entertains him by making out with him, so it it could have been I don't see feckish doing that, so it could have been the hitman that like threatened her. that makes more sense, okay well, if she, she tries to stop Bond from getting shot, she notices the thing
2: right, so if she is an agent, she sucks at her job, yeah, but if she's <laughs> just someone that's you know been told to shut up and make out with James Bond, then. Then that makes a little more sense.
1: Yeah, and she saves his life by jumping in front of the shot. So I, 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 I like your theory. I didn't even think about it just because it's kind of like a blur to me. But uh, I, I like, I like your train of thought on that one.
2: Right. Jaws, uh, one thousand times more interesting. In fact, he's, <laughs> he's he's about he's about fifty times. I don't know him and the big boat. Those are the two big coolest coolest things in the movie. He kills people by biting their throat, ripping out their throats. I imagine with his with his right. steel teeth, which is creepy as fuck. You know, a guy right. this size, a guy this size could easily just snap people's necks. So yeah. it's it's a it's a stylistic choice he's making. I don't personally, yeah. I don't personally like it. But other than that, I'm I'm totally pulling for Team Jaws all the way. Yeah, they were
1: definitely milking his neck-biting scenes. It was, like, very vampiric.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, it's, But it wasn't, like, romantic at all. So I don't think it was supposed to be. It, but they, they just had these, like, elongated moments where he just, like, slowly goes in a like, chomp people's necks open. I don't know. It was weird. But <clears throat> I am giving him my number one best tradecraft. Uh, <clears throat> when Triple X and Bond jump in the van after he steals the microfilm, He he hears them talking. I guess he's got a mic in the back, or I don't know if he's got a mic in the back, or he just hears them talking. One, I don't even know why they're talking, if they're hiding out in a van while their target's driving. Uh Anyway, he knows they're in the back of the van, so he just drives them off to like this remote ruins archaeological location where no one else is. Gets out of the van and just walks off, pretending to not know they're in there, and he just sets up an opportunity to drop a giant block on them. So when, when he first was driving them off, I was like, he knows they're in the van. Why is he driving them to the place that they're waiting for him to drive them to? But when they got there and it was just going there to try and kill them, I was like, oh, that's a really good move. So uh, that, that's my number one trade craft it was him just like getting out of the van, like nonchalantly. Like, yeah, there was no one just loudly talking in the back of my van.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought maybe he didn't need to drive all night uh right. into into <laughs> the next day to yeah. get to a safe spot but uh
1: yeah, it seemed uh, like what, like the afternoon uh,
2: at least the morning because it's it's nighttime when they when they first get into his van and and he drives until the sun comes up so they have the jaws encounter there that's where um near the end of that sequence uh they've gotten control of the van they're trying to get away in the van and we get the great part where he's like just tearing the fucking truck apart yeah piece. he like rips it open that was super bites fun. in his stuff that was super picks fun. up the tire yeah. yeah one of the best parts of the movie
1: yeah it was a lot of fun watching that
2: mm-hmm and he's got his he's got his thing that he does several times in this movie uh, where he uh, you know after getting thrown off a train or crashed into a building or you know whatever whatever it is like picking himself up and and just dusting himself off and straightening his tie yeah Right, which is which is fun. Uh, I I mean, obviously, the the reason he doesn't talk is because he's got the the metal teeth, and mm-hmm. they you know they certainly couldn't have fashioned uh, you know some kind of prosthesis that would let the actor talk. I mean, the actor himself, like he can talk. He's we've seen him act in other films, um, right? But the fact that he's just completely silent from beginning to end of the movie was also something I thought was a, a selling point in the menace of him.
1: Yeah, made him a little more creepier than he already was.
2: Uh-huh. And um yeah, I remember like just watching the movie, I was like, you know, like this guy should be this guy should be in more movies. I mean he lives. He survives the movie. That's another super cool thing about him. Uh Bond at the end tricks him into falling into the shark tank. And
1: And then he just beats up the shark.
2: He fucking. And and takes
1: a big chunk out of the shark's neck with his like metal teeth.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, he survives the movie and, um.
1: swims off in the middle of the ocean like nothing
2: happened. I think the. yeah, 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 I think the very. Actually, I think the very last thing we see is him walking up on the shore and probably adjusting his tie again. Um. And yeah, so I was wondering, well, at the time watching it, I was like, why didn't they bring him back in future movies? Looked it up. Of course they did. They bring him back in <laughs> I think I think the next one, uh Moonraker. And he's
1: That's the one we were going to do, but uh I think when you looked it up, this was supposed to be Roger Moore's best one, so we we went with this one instead.
2: Yeah, Moonraker is supposedly one of the really silly ones and also it it was like super rushed into production like at the end of this movie they say like James Bond will be back in uh, some some other name of some other bond film but then star wars came out star wars is like Ugh. is like the same year as this or something right 77 right and yeah, something like that uh yeah they did moonraker specifically cuz they wanted to capitalize on space stuff cuz everybody was space crazy right uh, he does. So yeah, he does return in Moonraker. They were even, they were thinking about bringing him in even a third time because he was a big hit with audiences as well, but, uh, just something went wrong with that and and they never did. Uh, cause yeah, cause he survives Moonraker as well. Okay. So for part one of this podcast, we've basically covered the opposition, Uh, We gave our thoughts on the head villain, gave some good love to Jaws, and talked about the various nefarious figures trying to perpetrate the villainous plot. Join us next week when we'll talk about our hero characters in this film, those being the sultry Major Amasova, a.k.a. Triple X, and of course the always smarmy James Bond. How they acquit themselves as spies will be our points of discussion for the next episode of Spies Like Us.
1: As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And please, if you could give us some help, give us some feedback on rating us and leaving comments. We're always trying to improve the show, and your thoughts would be a big help.
0: The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautix, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and Sound Effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.